Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com It's 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News, where we explain marijuana laws so you can change them. Today, we are joined by Jackie Cornell from 1906 New Highs. We're going to be talking about the social impacts of cannabis legalization. But first, we do have to get into a little bit of cannabis legalization news. So, Tom, Miggy, what's going on in the news this week? Olympus is down. Yeah. I hear that. Oh, I hear that. Let's share that screen real quick. So uh, for the first time, and thank you for joining us for another exciting episode, historic episode of Cannabis Legalization News. It seems like every week we make history with Cannabis Legalization, and we did last night. You know, thumbs up and thank you for subscribing and tuning in. But right now, real history, uh, protesters have stormed the Capitol, forcing Senate evacuation during electoral college count. These guys are the opposite of what they say they are, like the Patriot thing. No, Patriot no, thing. Yeah, there's there's nothing patriotic about disrespecting the rule of law. Yeah, yeah, it's more of an insurgency, more of a terrorist at this point. Um, yeah, but you know, we did flip the two. That's what it is. I mean, and so like uh, we were, it wasn't looking good when we signed off, but it had only been an hour. And by the time I, I went to sleep last night, Warnock had already uh, gone ahead. I don't think they had called it when I woke up this morning. They called the Warnock seat. So right now it's forty nine fifty. Uh, some news outlets like BuzzFeed and Vox have already called Ossoff as the winner over Purdue. So it'll be a 50-50 Democrats uh, and Republicans split with Kamala Harris. Oh. Kamala Harris uh, being the uh, tie-breaking vote. This is the the real chance now. Once once we get this done, and then the pressure is going to be on getting it through. What what did it pass last time? Was it the Senate or the House? It's passed the House because the House was uh, controlled by Democrats. However, we can do the math on it right now and say, well, ninety-seven percent of the Democrats will vote in favor of it. Ninety-seven percent of the Republicans will vote against it. Does that? What does that come down to? Then, like you know, if so. Uh, Comes down to a vote. Wash, is it going to come down to Kamala? Because yeah. like Kamala has been, she was a sponsor of the Moore Act. That would be freaking epic if she's the, the the deciding vote that votes for her own bill as the uh, the the president of the Senate, and then it sends it to Joe Biden's desk. And that's when you're going to really start to see a lot of that social equity aspect that is not only in the Moore Act but also in a, you know, various other state laws. It'll be. I don't know. Like, what what are you what are you giving the odds that the Democrats pass the Moore Act in the next two years? They better pass it, or else you know voters are going to be pissed. This past four years have proven that. Actually, this past week, this past three months, have proven that Americans we actually tired of people's like we don't want to be so divisive all the time. We don't, you know. There was no like I, I, the politics, man. Like watching it today, it's all dog and pony show. But these, well, the fact that these guys, well, there was some politics today that came out as well. Merrick Garland today was named as uh, not Obama Supreme Court pick, but Obama Supreme Court pick Merrick Garland is Joe Biden's attorney general. That was named hours before the, uh, well, I guess we can call them, you know, tyrants or fascists that have stormed to the level that the, 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 the Capitol are there. But uh, what did Merrick Garland say in a 2012? Uh, L.A. Times story where he was on a federal three judge panel hearing an appeal by the Americans for Safe Access over whether the DEA should reschedule cannabis. 
He wanted to wait till the scientists to hear from the scientists. Yeah, don't we have to defer to their judgment on what the medical studies show? We're not scientists, they are. But uh, that implies that the DEA is scientists, which is just so way off. The DEA is not scientists. But we'll have one next week and we can ask some pretty important questions. Oh, my gosh. Next week. Hopefully the, the, the coup is over by next week. And so uh, when we have Dr. Ethan Russo on the show next week, if you have any amazing uh, cannabis science questions that you want to get and answered uh, from from Ethan Russo, uh, Dr. Russo, please tune in next week. Uh, we're going to have all sorts of interesting questions regarding uh, the cannabinoids, the interplay of CBD and THC, the lesser cannabinoids, how those are created, how the terpenes are created. And then um, uh, maybe we can explore and have him explain that thing that Max Simon spoke about when he was talking about his Gangier certification. Six various types of cannabis that uh, cannabis like cultivars that are out there for yeah. medical use. I saw uh, I was just drifting the other day and I saw in the uh, the expensive part of the thrift shop was uh, somebody uh, donated uh, wine samples. It was called make, making sense of wine. It was like a bunch of little tubes of wine. And that's going to be the next level for cannabis, right? Like it's going to be little tubes of terpenes and you can identify different aromas and whatnot. It's oh, I can't wait. Like, just like a brewery is able to do beer flights, right? You've, you've had a beer flight at a brewery before. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's marvelous. You have, like, four or five little, like, four-ounce beers. And then, like, so uh, these breweries are able to show off their wares. And it's delightful. Now, imagine that you had, like, four or five clean chillums, like glass, you know, nice. And then four or five little uh, half not even a half a gram. This would be like, you know, a tenth of a gram. So like matchstick size heads, you know, like enough for a chillum, a, a personal. Sure. Like a little toast. Yeah. Like the taste. Like you could have weed flights. And it's like, oh, let's compare this grapefruit next to some Skittles or next to some uh, some Jack Air. Well, and then you get uh, one of our, our local uh, rags here, Northwest Leaf. They do uh, terpings and, and tannins, like with wines and, and weed uh, or beer and uh, weed. It's pretty great issue i think see that's that's really the nice stuff that's going to be happening especially more and more now that the democrats have taken control over the senate uh, uh that the what do they call that consumption lounge license type the consumption lounge license type is going to have a lot of fun for the consumer buying and consuming cannabis currently in the united states is nowhere near as enjoyable as buying and consuming alcohol because it's alcohol is way more socially accepted and then also you can have uh, commonality and camaraderie in your imbibing. I mean, like you can go to a baseball game and what do you do? Get a hot dog and a beer. Well, you know, before COVID, Puff Puff Pass was a thing too. Yeah, but it was still like, you know, there wasn't a place that you can go do a Puff Puff. I mean, you'd have to be out with your buddies or something. Uh, somewhat maybe even trying to avoid detection depending on where you're trying to enjoy that cannabis. But you didn't have like a place that you can go and like get high. Well, once a year, Seattle Hempfest. Once a year at Seattle Hempfest, I get that. That was cool. That was a very cloudy and hazy time. I had a great time. All right. Well, let's see. Uh, let's see how the protest is going because we still have some other news stories. Uh, some are historic, but then it's like, well, does the stock market give a crap about this? That's how I'd really care. No, stock market doesn't care. It sold off a little bit. It was up there, and now it's down here, but it's still up. And and pot stocks today took off. Did you see the pot stocks? No, oh, man. no they, they, because uh, because the um, because Georgia went blue, everybody's now handicapping that the more act will pass. The so pot stocks are up like 10 percent today. Oh, that's given. I expected like Google searches and everything to increase by at least 10, 20 percent, you know, the potential. Left. And then once the more act comes into uh, the Senate process. Oh, my, oh God. my gosh. Think about all the views we're going to get when we do the Senate uh, telecast. Just and then if it passes, I just the implication is going to be huge for anybody who enjoys freedom or money. Uh, yeah, I like freedom and money. Uh, I do. I think a lot of people do. So then, trying to figure out like if the historic context of what's happening right now. When was the last time protesters stormed the U.S. Capitol in history? And I still was just getting stuff from like Donald Trump's protesters are storming currently. Uh, and then it looks like. In May of 1971, protesters shut down DC traffic. But then I have like a list of the eight biggest protests in U.S. history. And then uh, our little our little you know question or quiz for the, the, the thing could be like, all right, well, 
When was the last time somebody actually stormed it, though? We'll talk about that one after the, the, the eight biggest protests in U.S. history. Number one, the anti-nuclear march in New York City Central Park. An estimated of a million people. Uh, 1995, the Million Man March came in at 850,000 people. Uh-huh. Uh, April 25th, 2004, March for Women's Lives in uh, D.C., about 500,000 to 1.15 million people. That's that's a pretty big gap. I mean, like if you're talking that many people, how well are you counting? You know, if if, if you have a gap of 600,000 people. <laughs> oh, you see, this is like when they start saying it's an anti-war protest in biggest cities. I don't know about that. Then Million Woman March, anti-Vietnam protest in 69, Washington, D.C., 500 to 600,000 people. Let me add to that. There were shots fired in the Capitol today. Too. There's shots fired in the Capitol. Hey, that brings us to the answer to uh, our when was the last time somebody stormed the Capitol question. It appears that it was 1954, a shooting in the House chamber on March 1st, 1954. Uh, while members gathered on the House floor, three men and one woman entered the visitor's gallery chamber and quietly took their seats. All four belonged to a Puerto Rican nationalist party and only hours earlier had traveled to D.C., and then uh, there was a shooting. And so uh, it was this separatist group from Puerto Rico came in and shot some people in the Capitol. And so there's some House pages carrying a stretcher with a wounded member of Congress on it. And uh, that was 1954. So if Miggy's reporting that there were shots fired in the Capitol. Yeah. You know, what is what is I just don't get it, man. Like the patriotism, the. It's not there. Like, I don't know what these fuckers' uh, intent is because you're not proving anything, right? This cat, Joshua Stone here, you know how we get trolled with the uh, whatever it is. This guy, socialism is terrorism. Like, what? You enjoyed your $600 check. I don't know what the fuck these people are fucking bitching about. Like, coming up, well, you will enjoy a twelve hundred. Yeah, but like, but uh, if socialism is terrorism, then the cannabis industry is terrible because, like, a lot of socialisms in the cannabis industry, especially like in Illinois and New Jersey or in other states, where the the, the state picks the winners and losers, not the market picks the winners and losers. And so we talk about that all the time on the show, man. We should talk about something fun, like say edibles. Yeah, but like let's let's focus on the real important thing. The real important thing is the the biggest story. Uh, the Democrats look like they're going to take retake the Senate. And so Kamala Harris will be the deciding vote in the Senate. And that means that there's some halcyon days of the marijuana future where there's no such thing as marijuana anymore. It's gone back to cannabis and it's helping everybody. And it won't put you in jail. That's won't put you in jail. That's the key goal right there, buddy. <laughs> like jail and internet commerce, right? Right. I mean, and then it'll help, uh, our, you know, like companies like we have on Wednesdays for a business show. Everybody's going to expand and be bigger. No matter what. Yeah. Oh, shit. All right. Well, let's bring our guest, Jackie, on. Hey, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Happy to be with you. It's a big day. Yes, it is. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at 1906 New Highs? Sure. So um, I work for 1906, um, our chief of policy and health innovations. Uh, my background is in public policy and public health. And so that kind of means I do a whole lot of everything, um, everything from the regulations that we need to operate in our states to what does research look like and how do we kind of push from inside the industry uh, to do more and do better. Um, and a lot of what I talk about is sort of that intersection um, between medicinal users and recreational users. I don't really think that there is a big difference. And I spend a lot of my time kind of dealing with that big piece of a Venn diagram of people who are therapeutically using cannabis. Um, and that falls in line with a lot of our brand and, and microdosing. So I'm happy to be here. Happy to talk um, on what feels like a really, you know, historic day. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so where are you guys currently operating? So we currently have uh, products on shelves in Colorado, Oklahoma, and uh, Illinois. And we've got a few new states kind of coming online uh, very soon. Um, we like to tease stuff out on social. So our Instagram is the spot uh, to kind of keep tabs on where we're launching new uh, states. But uh, My at cannabis industry lawyer, where do we hit up uh, yours at what? Uh, at 1906 New Highs. 
Nice. At 1906 New Highs, don't forget to give that a follow. What types of products are you guys featuring? So 1906, um, I think, hits such a sweet spot for so many consumers because all of our products are low dose. Um, and we've got uh, some of the most uh, fasting acting cannabis on the market. We've got a patented technology. We work with a brand um, to or a company in Canada to really make sure that we are feeling it faster. Um, how many people have consumed an edible and waited 60 minutes, felt nothing, 90 minutes, felt nothing. Then they take another and then they have a horrible experience because they've way over consumed, right? They thought they were getting a nice five or 10 milligram and now they've got 20 milligrams in them and they're miserable. Um, that's probably about like everybody. Like if you've used edibles before, you usually have that one time. But I think that's similar to people that have gotten drunk before. Everybody's like, I'll never drink insert liquor here again. You right. know, and the smell of SoCo to this day turns my stomach. Yes, <laughs> exactly. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> But uh, 1962, can you talk about the significance of your name? I just, I love sure. the origins of the, uh, uh, whatever. Yeah. So for us, 1906, um, and, and thanks for bringing that up, that our name comes from the Wiley Act, which was essentially the, the act that created the prohibition on cannabis. Our belief is that, you know, prior to 1906, uh, people used cannabis all the time. It was in people's medicine cabinets. And so that's really what we, we aim to do. Um, we have chocolates and confections in Colorado, but in all of our other states, we're exclusively pressed tablets. So the idea is that that's how we as people consume so many things. Mm. Um, and then our product line is also experience driven. So for the consumer who doesn't know, you know, a terpene, indica, sativa, and is, is pretty green, no pun intended to yeah. using, um, you know, you walk into your first dispensary and you're just completely overwhelmed. Um, we take all the guesswork out by asking, how do you want to feel today? And catering our products to answer those questions, as opposed to, here's your PhD in cannabis. I hope you enjoy your joint. <laughs> um, it's a little bit different of an approach. Um, and I think for me, it just kind of fit in line with my background and how do you make people feel better, right? Where do we come at cannabis and, and using it as a way to increase the best, you know, make, make it the best quality of life you can have. Yeah. So what is the, what background then do you come from where you have such customer uh, focused uh, outlook? So uh, my personal background, I started as a peer to peer sex educator at Planned Parenthood almost 20 years ago and got bit. Thank you for your service. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Um, I got bit by the policy bug because I felt like, look, I could have one conversation with one person um, about you know, what they're experiencing. But it became really clear, especially in things like women's health, that there are larger policies in play. And so I've spent most of my career as an advocate for patients. Um, and I've been really fortunate to work both in state and federal government um, doing that kind of work around healthcare uh, affordability and access. Um, I joke that most of the time, you know, I, I like to knock out all the controversial stuff. So I started with Planned Parenthood, spent al almost a decade working on the Affordable Care Act, and then went into cannabis. So uh, I'm no stranger to uh, to controversy. Well, I mean, it looks like we have uh, some fruits that are going to bear out now with the uh, complete. I realize that right now there's a this is the closest that I think we've ever lived because I wasn't alive in 1954 when somebody stormed the Capitol and did a shooting. Like the only time I've seen this was like on bad action movies from the 90s. And so like this is the closest we've lived in a coup, I think. Oh, yeah. But I think the I mean, again, uh, good will win. Thank you. Because the, the redundancies of the American policy and how things work. Uh, Biden's our new president. Uh, we have flip Georgia. Maybe the more act because that's going to be the next focus, right? Like, you know, for everything to be uh, like, like we, Jackie, I really like that you talked about wellness and cannabis use and how you select who uses. I think all uses cannabis is wellness is wellness, right? Like, it, well, if I smoke a little bit now, I'll drink a little less later. Or uh, you know, none of it's it's all beneficial to our body in the end. Well, and I think that's what. 2020, I mean, God, talk about a year, right? Um, but you're the last for 10. <laughs> I feel like I aged a decade, right? Um, but how oh. many people turn to cannabis in that period of time? And like I've heard, you know, oh, it's just because people were working from home so they could be home stoned. No, people were turning to cannabis because we were living with unprecedented anxiety, health anxiety, economic anxiety, 
And also just all of the things that we as humans are conditioned to do to relieve that anxiety. Gone is going to, you know, hang out with your friends, a concert, right. a manicure, you know, like the gym, the movies, like all of the all of the social world that we had yeah. um, around, you know, fell apart. And so I yeah. think cannabis came in um, because people had more anxiety than, than ever before um, and, and really kind of showed people. And, you know, when we talk about why is cannabis increasing? Like, why, why do we see this happening? I mean, more yeah. than 20% of cannabis consumers are boomers or older, and it's only growing by the day. Right. Um, and you can't drink like you used to. Remember, as you get older, it's not like you're 24 anymore. It's like, well, you know, I was out drinking till four in the morning, but fortunately, I got three hours of sleep. Yeah. No. And so uh, I think it's great that you're really coming at them and explaining to them and spoon feeding them and saying, like, how do you want to feel? What's your experience level with the, the, the product? Because, you know, five milligrams for me, I, I probably wouldn't even notice but then like you know five milligrams for somebody who hasn't used it in three months or ever they may okay. um what i thought about 2020 was like this is the closest i've ever felt to being in space or uh in prison and because like and but like one of those you know nice prisons like the home confinement like i just feel like there should be like something around my ankle saying about how to leave because you everything's closed yeah but yeah it's been crazy and I think too, right? There's there's always going to be a consumer that has been, con, you know, using for years, and and that that their needs are in many ways being met. I think our process was like, who's the new consumer? And frankly, it's people who look like me. I'm a mid, you know middle aged soccer mom, you know, in my late thirties, right? It's it's older women, it's older folks in general, and middle aged women who are the untapped cannabis consumer. And so to say to you know somebody here, go smoke this joint, like maybe they don't want to smoke. Maybe they don't, you know, they're intimidated by that whole process. They're intimidated by the stigma. Um, and I think of it as how do you, how do you show people that there's a benefit and then start to let them make their own choices about what they want to consume. Right. Um, I talk a lot about Doritos uh, in, in this analogy. The snack when you chip. buy the bag of a Doritos, right. The family size bag of Doritos, you know what you're consuming and, and you're making that choice I think for so many people, we're, we're just handing them the big size bag of Doritos. And some people need the like snack size bag, right? They no, need right. to like, get into it in a different way. Oh, absolutely. Oh. I mean, because most people aren't like, I, I love this plan and, you know, it's great. And I, you know, I look at it like it's a fine type of thing to enjoy. That is such a small sliver of the population that uses the plant, you know. And so I have to really remind myself that I'm, I have a warped perspective of what I'm looking at, you know. And yeah. so it's great that you're out there helping making it accessible to more people that would never have previously considered it, especially for its wellness aspects. I mean, there's uh, and this is interesting because your 1906 company kind of is at the edge uh, of where like the medicinal kind of meets the, the, the adult use in the sense that, you know, you guys are in capsule form. And right. so um, what is your guys's philosophy on these types of doses that you you help your patients with? So I think um, first I, I want to talk a bit more about like that idea of the recreational consumer versus the adult use consumer versus the medicinal consumer, because there have been studies that have shown 60 plus percent of adult use consumers who we used to call recreational consumers are coming in for a therapeutic need without a cannabis card, without a medical card. Right. right. And so I think a lot of it is realizing that there are folks coming in very intentionally addressing pain, addressing anxiety, addressing insomnia, and how can you potentially show them other alternatives to smoking? Um, and as somebody who's worked in healthcare for so long, that felt really honest to me because people are allowed, again, to make their own choices, but I think having an option that isn't a smokable product feels good to say, here's another way you can do it. Um, you know, a lot of what we try to do is is work on the educational low and slow, right? So you can take multiple of our products if you want 20 milligrams. Like you said, you wouldn't even feel five. Um, but trying to bring people into cannabis in this space of that almost micro dosing level, two and a half, one milligram, take three if you want to, but can, can you consume all day at one and 2.5 and five milligrams for a better quality of life as opposed to, you know, 
smoking a whole joint at night, um, which some people, you know, still do even after using our products all day. It really kind of depends on what you need and what you're looking to get out of it. I think um, that's like beauty, right? Of cannabis, yeah. the beauty of the plant is that we're finding new things every single day that we can, you know, target and curtail. I mean, you know, my mom rubs a lotion on her knees, right? Like doesn't even consume, doesn't feel high at all. Her knee feels a whole hell of a lot better. Um, so, you because know, those pain receptors are more amenable to the CBD. Now that's one of the things, do you do a lot of outreach and education to your consumers uh, and also just the general public regarding the endocannabinoid system? Um, I heard you're bringing on Ethan Russo next week, actually, yeah. who yeah. is like huge, like such a like crush. Oh, uh, fan we're going to geek out. So like, so if you want to see us just like going like, but what about this? What yeah. about this? <laughs> So I think a lot of what we do is educate the bud tenders because we realize that that's the inflection point. Educating the consumer when we are still trying to grasp, and you know, the hurdles of advertising in cannabis, right? Like it's hard, I can't be in, you know, pick, pick name brand magazine, right? I can't take an ad out in that, even if it's an educational ad. Um, so a lot of our, uh, our efforts right now are at that bud tender level because that's who's can, you know, having the conversation. And is able to say, look, if this is what you're seeking, you know, this is what you can do. Um, we've tried to pivot a lot in the new reality because we used to have pop-ups in dispensaries. We used to have street teams, people out in community. That's all changed the last, you know, 10 months because there are no more concerts. There are no more street festivals. There's, right, it's just a different world. So um, a lot of what um, I'm also trying to do and build out in places um, that are expressly medicinal, like Oklahoma, which is a fascinating market. Maybe we could talk about that. Yeah, um, engage with physicians, right? Because they're the other conduit to people um, and the educational system there. So, you know, I could talk to one person or I could talk to the, the bartender or the, or the physician or clinician who's talking to dozens or hundreds a day. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think totally got a good point as far as the uh, not everybody wants to smoke. Because uh, here in Washington, when we had, uh, I tell Tom, we had we had markets. We had markets where people would socialize, consume, uh, spaces for just flower consumers and spaces for just dab consumers. Uh, and some of the markets I went to, they were like, okay, no consumption in the indoor at all because it bothered some people smoking. But they all did edibles and stuff. Right. And, and so it's a great niche that you got going on. And it's also easier to uh, uh, titrate, you know, to, to figure out how much, how high, or whatever feeling you're going for Dosing, right? Exactly yeah. right. Like, so you can really measure it down. Um, and that's why I say take two, take three if you want, right? But we know that you can really, you can, you can have a similar experience. Um, when we talk about like the new federal landscape, I also believe that eventually uh, Medicare and Medicaid will, will get with the program. Um, looking at, in New Jersey, where I used to be a regulator, um, upwards of 50% of the patients were on some sort of federal assistance, right? And we knew that because they got a discounted registration card. That's how we had that information. I would be stunned beyond recognition if big insurance or our country's insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, will reimburse for a smokable product. I just don't see the reality of that is, to me, seems, it seems very preposterous. So gummies will be hard, you know, confections, candies, et cetera, will be hard because if- Is that gonna be the fine line between gummy and lozenge? There is that weird fine line, um, but I think capsule tablet, you know, there's no calories in our product. There's virtually no allergens. Um, we list all the other botanicals. I should, I should mention that um, all of our products have additional adaptogens beyond the THC and the CBD that's in them to help elicit, you know, sort of the preferred effect. Um, and then that way, um, but like back to that idea of like what will be covered we're looking at this from a much more of a pharma model as opposed to how do I make the best gummy bear? Um, because I don't covered by insurance. Has creating like, or in your business plan or strategy, phrasing it as a pharma model, has that helped uh, attract investors? I think so. I think that they like the idea that we're doing something different um, mm -hmm. and intentionally so, right? It was, you know, I joined the company 18 months ago, but at its inception, a lot of people like laugh, like, how are you going to sell a low dose product? I would, like you said, I would, I wouldn't even feel five milligrams, right? Um, I think what's happened over time is that 
our sales have proven, our reputation has proven that a lot of people do want a different experience and, and they want something that feels a little bit more measured and metered. And you know, you're going to have the same feeling, the same experience over and over and over again. Um, Starbucks gets a lot of flack for a lot of good reasons, but the latte you order in you know, San Francisco and the latte you order in the middle of Idaho and the latte I order in you know, my little suburban town in New Jersey all kind of taste exactly the same, right? Yeah. And so there's something about that standardization that I think consumers really like. They want the dependability that it's, they're always gonna have the same experience. How often do people have a strain that works you know, for their pain or their anxiety and then they can't find that strain anymore? Um, yep. So we try to eliminate a lot of that for folks. So you guys probably extract like profiles then of like uh, whatever plant you're looking for, for that effect. I'm looking at your guys' uh, uh, product listing, and you guys look like it's tasty candy. Um, but what's the difference? Like, you got the drops, you have what looks like little chocolate bars, and you're talking about the capsule. So it's like the capsule inside? or No, is... so the drops are the tablet. Okay. So the, oh. tab, the drop isn't candy. It's um, It okay. might look like candy, but it's a swallowable, like an Advil. Sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you chew it or is it just, is it intended to be swallowed? It's intended to be swallowed. Um, it's full of stuff that you wouldn't, it doesn't taste good. It tastes like chalk. Uh, um, so uh, our chocolates are amazing. Um, we just, Thrillist just last week uh, named our uh, peanut butter cup, our Bliss cup, uh, one of the best edibles on the market. So our chocolates are really outstanding, but they're only available in Colorado. So if you're in Colorado, check us out. Um, we spent a ridiculous amount of time getting the peanut butter just right. We make everything ourselves and, and work to single source chocolates and, and peanuts and everything. So we take a lot of uh, pride in making sure that um, not only is it, you know, feeling good, but it's tasting good. You're going to enjoy that peanut butter cup. You're going to enjoy that piece of chocolate. That's great. Now, was that created in a, uh, a licensed kitchen in Colorado? It was. Yep. So what we've got a manufacturing degree in Colorado. Our manufacturing license in Colorado. Manufacturing license. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Why do you think it's important that 1906, New Highs, and other cannabis companies commit to public health and social justice? And, and do you think alcohol companies should probably end up doing this type of thing as well? I don't, I don't know if alcohol companies are going to do the same thing because I don't know if both the stakes are as high and the injustices are as bad, mm. candidly. Right? Um, there's a very long history of people being incarcerated disproportionately. Um, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you have talked about on the show many times and brought experts in to, to rattle off all the horrible statistics that both have happened and still happen when it comes to communities of color. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's a little bit different than alcohol in that, in sure. that respect. Um, when it comes to the public health side of the house, I mean, alcohol and cannabis couldn't, in my opinion, couldn't be further from each other, right? They're lumped yeah. together all the time. Um, as sort of ways we cope with the world, but there's legitimate medicinal benefits to marijuana. There aren't for alcohol. Um, name something else that you're using for epilepsy, pain, insomnia, seizure, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. So uh, when it comes to public health messaging, which is like my, my personal sweet spot, um, if, if folks said what you know, create your perfect job beyond the one you have, it would be talking about that destigmatization of this is what cannabis can do for you. And this is how so many people um, have lives have been made better. I mean, I, I was working in public health. I was working in the state of New Jersey. The opioid crisis was raging. And prior to the pandemic, it was the largest public health crisis of my lifetime, right? Um, everywhere we were dealing with overdose, uh, everywhere we were dealing with um, horrible rates of fentanyl getting into communities, and it wasn't Completely just completely legal, like like, uh, but like a legally created catastrophe. A legally created, crea yeah, exactly yeah. right. Um, with a lot of folks to kind of point fingers at, both big pharma, government, health systems. I mean, like there were a lot of bad actors, kind of either knowingly or unknowingly creating it and and deepening it. Right. Um, I got more hard narcotics for a root canal than I did for giving birth years later. And, and it shouldn't have been that way, right? Yeah. Um, but what opened my eyes so radically, my exposure to cannabis prior to being in the New Jersey Department of Health, it was 
you know, HIV and, and oncology, people dying essentially and making, yeah. and so I had this very, well, this, this is just for those who are the worst of the worst. But isn't that um, strange? Like when you think about it now, looking back, you're like, we were giving it to the ones that were the most sick, the right. most frail and enfeebled, and it was working for them. What the hell do you think it was going to do if you gave it to everybody? Seriously. Well, and what opened my eyes so much were individuals who were struggling with addiction, um, <clears throat> just you know, functioning addicts, people who were just popping pill after pill after pill to survive, and how cannabis radically changed their life. And that was when I started to go, wait a second, wait a second. We've, there's, there's a lot more here than what my, you know, my background sort of looking at from, I had a dear friend who was at Drug Policy Alliance. So it was kind of up on the ACLU sort of social justice angles of it all. Yeah. But I, I was, I had a lot to learn in those years about how much it could help people struggling with addiction. And for me, I think that's where the public health conversation is going to go in time. It's like, how do we take a country full of people addicted to opioids and help them manage the reasons they're addicted in the first place, of course, but cannabis can be a big part of that process. When you were there in your public health uh, career, were you aware of the endocannabinoid system? I don't think prior to joining the Department of Health and having the medicinal marijuana program under me, I worked in federal government and I worked in healthcare for a, quite a while um, and I was not aware. I had the blessing, the misfortune, uh, either way you slice it. Third day on the job, Governor Murphy uh, put out an executive order to overhaul the program. I was still learning where to park my car <laughs> and I had to now take on this endeavor. And so for me, it became um, you know, a really great opportunity. He gave us 60 days to do it, which in government time is, I mean, is any time. 60 days to put a report together is a blink of an eye. Uh, um, they do that all the time in this industry and it kind of is, uh... I, I will sometimes report on like how the industry may be rigged. And that's one of the things where you're supposed to have your entire application, which is over a thousand pages done in two months. Like here's the application. We want them in a week. Well, that's not that bad. Like yeah. the worst one was five weeks in Georgia. So like yeah. November 23rd to December 28th, truly filed a suit to try to kick it out. But Illinois was just two months and COVID elongated it. What's the application window in, in New Jersey? Um, so the application window, I'm trying to remember, I feel like applications came out the last time in end of June and they were due the end of August. I know they were due the end of August cause I didn't sleep much the month of Too August. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's sometimes how it works both for the receiving end, right? Here you are. Here's, here's your brand new job. Figure out the whole department and give me this report in 60 days. Uh, mm -hmm. And on now I see it on the other side as, a, as someone in the industry. Yeah, and then like uh, from your experience in uh, the New Jersey market, uh, can you explain a little bit about the New Jersey market? Is it a limited market or is it an open market? Uh, New Jersey is an incredibly limited market. So um, I could geek out on this all day, but the quick That's history- That's why we have you here. Hey! Um, <laughs> cannabis legalization news, where we geek out on the cannabis industry. Give us likes and subscribes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a Republican governor, Chris Christie, um, signed, or excuse me, a, a, a Democratic governor, John Corzine, signed the original medicinal bill into law but did it as he was walking out the door. It was part of the lame duck package. Under Chris Christie. We had that in Illinois. His name was Pat Quinn. And then Bruce Rauner came in. And so you had the same thing, Very lots of parallels. Yeah. So for eight years, the program like just kind of hung out. And unless you knew how to get into it and who to ask, and most of the time it was like an oncologist or a pain specialist who like kind of was hip to this, right? Who was advocating for this. There's 17,000 patients out of a state of 9 million. I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know what the percentage is, but that's really, really, really tiny. Um, we had a really heartbreaking story of a young boy who had cancer, Jake Honick, and his parents got the governor's ear on the campaign trail and just said, look, like, this is the one thing that helps Jake act like Jake again. But because of the limits at the time, it was only, I think, two ounces um, per month. And the parents were making their own oils, right, out of the flour because there was virtually no tinctures, no lozenges. Um, they were running out. 
And and they also had like the heartbreaking story of like burning whole batches and just like screwing it up, right? Because they're doing it themselves with the help of the internet, which is not how you should administer medicine to your children. Like you felt for these parents so profoundly. And I think that lit the fire under Governor Murphy um, as he was running. And then, you know, when he walked in to really say like, how do we, how do we get this right for people? Um, and that was really inspiring. I, I think it's been frustrating to see how closed the market has remained and uh, in, in the three years he's been in office. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons why that is. But um, when I come back to my roots in healthcare, it's affordability, access and quality. And you don't get any of those things in a small market. Um, that, that so limited market. And so like we talk all the time and it's a very comparative show because we'll have people on from all over the states and we compare them. And, and the whole goal really is to create um, efficiencies for that next state that comes online. And there's some stuff that New Jersey does that I think is really, really nice. But then there's some stuff that I'm like, this might just create a huge, you know, problem of litigation and delays. And the only people that are really going to be hurt by it are the patients. And then also, of course, the businesses that want to get in. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So New Jersey has been embroiled in a lawsuit uh, that has stopped any new licenses. Um, so there was a RFA in 2019 and no licenses have, have been awarded. Uh, there are 12 license holders, but I believe of the 12, only 10 are operational. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a really... And again, 9 million people, right? And and okay, so you're only taking from the medicinal population right now, it's still over 100,000 New Jerseyans. Um, it's grown that much in three years, um, but they're being served you know, by such a small a small group and, and it's heartbreaking, right? Because this is people's medicine. And yeah. um, you know, horrible waits in the beginning of the pandemic, right? Lines around the block of people in their cars trying to get product, uh, tons, of, tons of drama trying to just keep up with supply and demand. Um, there are shortages every single month and have been and will be until the market expands. And you yeah. know, I, I think the stigma helps make that thing stagnant, right? So like earlier, how you were talking about how it took a sick kid to get your governor to wake up, but also like earlier, how we were talking about how you're talking about people uh, being stoned at home during COVID during this pandemic, right? What's, what's, what's your image? What, what is stoned at home? Stone at home for me means I'm doing goddamn laundry and fucking doing yard work and and and, and, and tending to my kids and, and and running errands. That's what stone at home means to me. Like that image is just BS. Like like yeah. I, was, I mean like granted I would love to just be couch locked and play video games all freaking day on Twitch and like make some revenue that way. But it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you haven't figured that magic out yet. Um. <laughs> No, but I mean, I, there were a couple of interesting New York Times pieces during 2020, right? And they kept just like driving home this idea um, that cannabis and alcohol were connected, which I, I categorically disagree, or were the same, which I categorically disagree with. But what they did do right was talk about how often it was, you know, moms taking a hit of a vape pen in the bathroom in between homeschooling three different kids across three different classrooms and just the chaos of that, right? Like. Right. That's what stoned at home was in 2020. It was right? unprecedented chaos, especially for parents, uh, working parents, all parents, right? It was so much tumult. I, I think that idea is that you're right. You're doing your laundry. You're, you're juggling your kids. You're cooking dinner. You're, you're Zooming with family members across the country who you haven't seen in a year. You're going to virtual funerals. Like that's, that's what we were doing that year. So I, I always recalibrate to like, really, what does that mean? I, I hear you loud and clear. Yeah. And I really hope they get that the, the license type right out there because those poor people that are trying to access that vape pen and make sure that that distillate is of high quality and a purity, like the type that you can get from a regulated market. I hope that like I was doing a, a piece on uh, the New Jersey micro license and the micro license isn't micro. It's a it's like a, be a thousand plants. That thousand plant facility is going to cost a lot of money to build. And, yeah. and then you have to go, I mean, you're going to make hundreds of pounds and then you're going to have hundreds of pounds of trim. You don't have that license. So what are you going to do? And then are you going to already have a contract with another processor who's going to buy your trim? Or are you going to have to also try to get that license? And that yeah. puts the price up. And okay, now you get to go sell it. All right. Well, what dispensary wants to stock your product in, instead of their own? 
yeah. are you going to then also have to try to get that? And so like, you know, by the end of the day, when I was done with this, uh, this piece, like I was already at a $10 million capital investment. And I'm like, how does this put the black market out of business? Why isn't yeah. there that, uh, that micro grower license that you see in like a Michigan? It's just that their class A hundred plant license where, you know, you could probably open that for business for hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, maybe right. half a million at the top end. There you go. Now you're actually getting into a price point where people can afford it. And, and then I think with, with the, with the Morac passing, though, it would be fascinating if they can actually get SBA loans, because that was an aspect of the Morac, you know? And I think that that, you know, come back to why does alcohol play or not play in the social justice space, right? Because of some of the things you just mentioned, right? Who has the capacity to build that kind of equity, right, on, on, top, of, uh, on top of just like life? It, it by design becomes an industry full of people of wealth and affluence, right? Yeah. Who can do that? If you look at pharmacies, states set parameters of who can be a pharmacist, what, you know, the FDA regulates what farm, you know, what prescriptions you get. Um, but states don't get into the business of how many CVSs or how many Walgreens or how many Rite Aid you have. And it becomes a town by town decision about how do we serve the needs of our community and what do we want? Yeah. And, and and the same is true of liquor licenses, right? So I, I hope that that is where we collectively get um, because I think that's how you, you start to be more accessible and allow mm -hmm. for more people to have more robust hands into the market. Because if it's $100 million or, or bust, I mean, how is that ever going to become an equitable market? And I, and I, I push back on that because I, I think the social justice work, right, expungements, decriminalization, and equitable markets are two things that sometimes get like all lumped together mm -hmm. and are actually radically different, right? Pushing your legislature and your governors to do what just happened today and do massive expungements and creating opportunities to get people into the cannabis industry, like we shouldn't just treat them as all one big giant thing, right? Like I, I, I fundamentally think you need different solutions to address different problems. And instead we kind of all capsule it all together. And I, I don't, I think that's very disingenuous um, both as policymakers, right? My old hat, um, but also inside the industry because yeah. not everybody can do everything. And, right. and how do you start to really hold what you can do best as a company? Mm -hmm. um, so when you want to compare us to alcohol, you know, who are you giving to and how and why, right? Are you doing, we do everything from large scale philanthropic, uh, you know, uh, contributions to working with a place in Denver that caters to LGBT youth who have been kicked out of their homes, right? So like super micro local, um, but that's important. And I think that that sort of outreach into real communities has to come both from the policy level of what do you do to change, but also from inside the industry. Uh, pretty pronouncedly. We we did a great program during the beginning of the pandemic called Friends in Weed, where we actually worked to give, um, take local uh, restaurants and give gift cards from local restaurants to local bud tenders who were also out of work. So it like helped everybody. So when you gave a donation, it simultaneously helped a bud tender who might be out of work, but also uh, helped local uh, restaurants who were, you know, independently owned mom and pop businesses. Um, and I think some of the programs need to look at more organic local things like that, instead of just where can I write a check to feel good about myself? Um, as opposed to like, how can you be invested in your communities? Yeah, I think that's great. And I also, when they have these types of social equity uh, windows of licensing, and the licensing window is eight weeks long or four weeks long, and then you don't know if you get the social equity points or not. So like a lot of people got disqualified for social equity in Illinois. They didn't even get notice of it, you know? And so in the Detroit legacy license round that they have coming up this spring, it's a method and it's a pre-qualification in Michigan. So like there would be a pre-qualification rounds for perhaps like the micro growers round in, in New Jersey so they could establish that it actually is 51% owned by uh, people in New Jersey 
And then it also has the right uh, locality restrictions because like wherever that that, that micro business opens in New Jersey, the owners also had to be local from there. And so if there's this first step to establish whether or not you're, you know, a micro business or social equity or a Detroit legacy prior to doing the entire license window, you're not going to have these types of shenanigans that then suddenly happen. I mean, you would have already been pre-qualified as a social equity or pre-qualified as a veteran or as a, mm -hmm. as a uh, local resident. And then you could do your narrative and all the other stuff that, you know, is thick. I got to figure it out. I got to figure it out. What do so, you got? Uh, once more act passes and we're going to reallocate the funds to, to the DEA and all this police funding, all the, all the wasted funding. Right. And we're going to take all that money and put it towards education to the city million dumbasses out there who don't understand how the constitution or all the other shit works out. So we're gonna, we're gonna I don't know. I don't know. Man. For everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I bet, I bet we could probably find people that just like, they think the earth's flat. They'll be like, there's no such thing as the endocannabinoid system. There's not, <laughs> it's not a thing. You're just lying. You're just a drug addict. That's what it is. But you know what though? Cannabis outpaced everybody in Montana, South Dakota, Arizona, New Jersey, by like huge margins in some of these states, right? So, yeah, there's always flat earthers, but I think, <laughs> look at look at how many medicinal patients are in Florida. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's right? like three hundred thousand or more now, right? Yeah. It's since I think last time I looked, it was close closing in on a half a million, maybe maybe more. Um, that to me proves that like the toothpaste is out of the tube, right? The federal mm -hmm. government has to catch up. And I, and we now have potentially, if, if things continue to go the way I think they're going to go with, with what's going on in Georgia, um, they have to figure out what to do and how to address some of the stuff in the Act. but go beyond that. I mean, research, oh, yeah. right? Do some real research, send the NIH some money or even better yet, faster and, and a, a zero calculation on your, on your, on your budget total here just allow hospitals give the department of health the credence have the secretary write a memo that says look if you want to research if you want to research cannabis in your hospital in your health system your medicaid and your medicare funding will not be impacted and there are no federal federal repercussions so as long as you do it to the standards you know that the you know you have a review board and you do it to the ethical standards of clinical you know clinical research mm -hmm. that creates such incentive there are so many physicians and clinicians that are eager to do this research. So many young people, right, who are like early in their careers and are hungry to be the next Ethan Russo's, but also destigmatize through knowledge, because I think that's how we get there. I think the research is going to be key. And, and it doesn't mean you have to allocate money to NIH right away. It just means you have to let, you know, local hospitals and health systems do the research without this fear of, of somebody coming down and cracking down and them losing all their federal funding. Cause that fear is real. And I think mm. those are easy things that I hope the Biden administration can tackle. Um, that was on my hit list before I thought we might have the Senate. Um, I think now with the Senate in play, you know, we've got a lot more to do. Um, I will say that we've only got 12 months because the house is going to turn around and get ready, ready for reelection you know, soon. Yeah. And I think that that is going to become really important for all of your listeners and folks who are sort of activists in this space to remember that this isn't a two-year window. This is a 12 to maybe 16-month window to get things moving because you cruise into the beginning of 2022 and most of the members of the House are going to be consumed with getting reelected. And unless they can tie cannabis to that, mm -hmm. it becomes harder. Yeah. But that's one of the nice things that, I mean, like with the, the, it was a bipolar vote. I mean, like we were on the air when we were doing the, the Morak vote is 95% for 95% against no overlap whatsoever. My own formerly owned, I'm not going to vote for her anymore. I'm not going to vote for the other guy though, either. Um, Sherry Bustos is one of the six Democrats that voted against it. I'm like, Come on. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but when you talk to real people, it's, I say all the time, it's like the most colorful political rainbow you've got is the cannabis voter. Yeah. And, Think of anything else that's controversial almost always comes down to party lines. Mm. Abortion, gun, pick, pick something. It's almost always a party line thing. Cannabis isn't. 
pretty wildly not so, right? Unless you're a member of Congress. Unless you're a member of Congress, right? So how do we, as the general public, inform our elected officials? How do we get them to vote with our best interests? I don't know. That's the get them out. saga of my life, I guess. We once had Senator Dalen Leach from Pennsylvania on discussing the SB 350 in Pennsylvania. And he goes, no, no, you just don't get it. You have to think like a politician. How does this make me look? Why does this matter to me? What is, what, how is this going to benefit me? Yeah. Will this do anything to harm my constituents? I like how it was me, 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 my constituents. Right. Yeah. And that's not everyone. I've worked for members of Congress who are amazing people. Um, but right. by and large, you know, I, I teach at a local college here and I teach a course in advocacy. And I, I say that power is people and money. Yeah. And many elected officials are driven by that that quest for power and they see it as money first, people second. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them do. And I think unfortunately, because of the way that redistricting happens in many states, districts are getting deeper of whatever color. They're getting right. deeper down those holes. And so it used to be harder for people to really be so dogmatic and so um, just entrenched in one point of view because their districts were a lot more purple. Even if it was like a purple red or a purple blue, there were a lot more purple districts. And I think that that over the last uh, two decades has pretty pretty radically changed throughout most of the country, um, you know, how people view it. Healthcare seems to be the thing that that tends to break that up. I mean, you saw that a lot in the midterms last cycle. Um, I think it's a big part of what happened this year. I think some of it was Joe Biden, some of it was anti-Trump, but a lot of people were really scared and wanted a party that I think could rally behind what does affordable, accessible healthcare look like. But that's my own bias of doing this for 20 years. But you know, the whole thing, like the, the, those people who were against the healthcare, like the whole, like, get the government on my healthcare, get the government on my Medicare. You're like, dude, um, I don't want to break the news to you, but... Um, Medicare is a government. Like that's the process. Or like they say they aren't socialist and then they go buy from Truly for Cresco or something. It's like, well, you realize this was a hand-picked winner by the state. So like if you don't support socialism, I guess home grow is the way to go, but then you don't get home grow. You know, it's terrible. Yeah. And yeah. Just the, the cannabis issue is not just a single voter issue. It yeah. has so many levels to it that'll just make America better, right? Everybody wants to make this great again, but how about we just get better? And it's also jobs. It's local jobs. Local right? jobs. You can, you can, they're local. There is no way. If you have a license in any state, that's where your people are going to operate, right? Um, and you got to grow the plant. It's, got, it's like farming chickens or anything else. You exactly. got to do the work. Like it doesn't grow itself, even though with exactly. all the hand dangled, nice, fancy stuff that somebody wants you to buy when you're you know, conducting your, or putting together your state of the art farm, you still have to do the work. Yeah. And I think even if we start to get some change in the federal um, relationships about how we do interstate commerce. And if we start to allow for that, I think that's a, a, that's a stretch, but I, I think there's a lot of people eager to get there. That's not on my 12 month goal. That's on my 10 year goal, candidly, yeah. or five year goal. Right. Um, but I do think that you bring in an incredible commitment to hiring locally um, we have that, you know, in, in all the places that we operate, we, we try to strive by that. I think that's how you get at some of the social justice pieces of it is you bring people into good paying jobs. Um, you know, we applied for a license in New Jersey. We haven't yet won it because of the law or, you know, no one's won anything because of the lawsuits, as I mentioned. Welcome to the um, yeah. But, you know, we have a program to, to train formerly incarcerated individuals and then not, not just train them, but then hire them, right? And if we can't hire them, find other people who will hire them and do job placement. So um, when we start to talk about like, what do what do voters want? People want jobs, people want an opportunity. Um, you know, people want healthcare benefits from their employer, like be a good business owner in your community. Um, I think can really be a different opportunity than, than just saying whether you do or don't like cannabis. Like where else are we gonna create a ton of jobs that isn't on the back of the federal government, right? We could do infrastructure, but we have no money. Like everybody's like, well, make broadband accessible, make Wi-Fi everywhere, fix all the roads and bridges. Of course, I would love to do those things, but that all costs money. And this is an opportunity to create local jobs, I think, and local tax revenue. Um, that doesn't requ require government to do anything other than frankly, getting a little bit out of the way, right? Regulate the product, come up with some standards, make sure it's 
safe for people, but then I'll let the market do what it'll do. And I think supply will prove that there's a lot to lot to happen. Yeah. I mean, like I like to go out to restaurants and eat, you know, and they have health inspectors and they have local health regulations in place. So I'm not poisoning myself. They can do that with cannabis. And I realize that cannabis is kind of like a casino a certain extent because you are taking the plant and you are turning it into something that is fungible for money. And it's not really heavy. It's not like, you know, if you're trying to steal a thousand dollars worth of weed or a thousand dollars worth of wine, it's got, you might need a wheelbarrow for the wine. You know, it's just it's heavier. And so I understand that you have security needs and you need a vault. But that vault doesn't have to be stuffed with cash if it's federally legal, you know. Yeah. And so there's still going to be security requirements. They'll come down a little bit and, and the price will also come down. I mean, the supplies, uh, what we did, a, a, me and Josh for the Talking Hedge podcast. And if you guys haven't subscribed to that one, you should. Uh, we were going over the, the year in cannabis talking about like the, the trends in various states. And Washington state was like basically sideways. Not very much tourism this year. And so like the, the demand is there and there's a lot of operators that, that can grow. And the price is stable. I mean, you can get a good eighth for 80 bucks. I'm sorry, 40 bucks, not 80 bucks. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at, you know, again, going back to the pharmacy model, right? You lock up a pharmacy, there's there's security. There, there, there's actually things in that pharmacy that can kill you, full stop. And I probably, I have two pharmacies that I could walk to from my house in the middle of suburban New Jersey, right? So like this idea that we couldn't possibly get there, I think is a is a very um, cautious and sort of fearful posture as opposed to like a, you know, a, a, a more abundance driven posture. Mm -hmm. cool. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. Where, Once again, where can we go to find and follow what you guys got going on at 1906 New Highs? Hit us up on Instagram. We're at 1906 New Highs, and that's where you can find all our cool products, where we're listed. Uh, you'll find our website, and you can also get some cool merch. Awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on, and thanks for tuning in. Everyone, make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis legalization news. We'll see you on Sunday.